0: Welcome to All Sides with Anna Stever. Americans are less religious than they were a decade ago. In the latest analysis of U.S. religious trends, one in four Americans identifies as a nun, meaning they are non-religious, agnostic, or atheist. And the Pew Research Center projects Christians could comprise less than half the U.S. population by 2050. What will this trend away from organized religion mean for communities, for our politics, for our nation. Over the next hour, we're exploring the rise of Americans identifying as nuns. And joining us is Ryan Burge, a political science professor at Eastern Illinois University, where he studies religion and politics. He's also a Baptist pastor and the author of a book called The Nuns, where they came from, who they are, and where they're going. Welcome to All Sides, Ryan.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Let's start by defining... Who the nuns are. And like I said at the beginning, in case you're confused by the hominin error, we're talking about N O N E S and not N U N. And it's yeah. people who are none of the above. And yeah,
1: so, go ahead. Yeah, so, yeah, so from uh, our perspective, nuns are three separate groups uh, atheists, agnostics, and the third group is one that is often forgotten in it. It's a group called Nothing in Particular. And that's actually what the, the survey response option says. It says not nothing in particular. Uh, atheists, agnostics, each are about 6% of the American population. Um, atheists don't believe in God. Agnostics are not sure if God exists or not. We call those people secular people because they've thrown off a religious worldview and replaced it with a secular worldview based on things like science and reason and logic. Uh, nothing in particular is… Most nuns are nothing in particular. 23% of all adults today are nothing in particular. They are non-religious, which means they've thrown off a religious worldview, but not replaced it with anything else. So they're defined by what they're not. They were 14% in 2008. They're 23% today. Amongst college-age folks, 18 to 22 years old, 31% of them identifies nothing in particular, which is the most popular response option amongst young adults in America today.
0: And... When you say nothing in particular, does this encompass the person who says, like, I'm spiritual but not religious or I believe in God but not an organized religion?
1: A lot of nothing in particulars do believe in God at some level. Uh, Actually, about a third of them say religion is somewhat or very important to them, but also say they're nothing in particular. Um, Most of them are non-religious in an activity way, right? Less than 10% of them go to church on a regular basis. But a lot of people who are spiritual but not religious pick nothing in particular. But some of them pick the very last option, which is the something else option, and then they free respond in a text box. And you get all kinds of interesting uh, responses to the text box, like an ancient alien thing theorist or I'm a Jedi or or I believe in God and that's about it. So uh, that's it's really, really hard to measure the spiritual but not religious people on a survey.
0: And speaking of ways to measure, the Pew Research is getting a lot of news in the headlines right now. But in your book, you talk about data from about four different places. You talk about the General Social Survey, the GSS, uh, something from Gallup and CES. So yeah. it kind of reminded me a little bit of like polling data for an election. There's a bunch of different outlets to do a poll. They all kind of come in in about the same place, and you kind of toss the outliers.
1: Yeah, so... What's funny about this stuff is that they, they don't come in at the same place. Uh, Gallup puts the nuns at 21%. The Cooperative Election side of the CES puts them at 36%. Uh, latest Pew numbers are at 28%, and um, GSS is around 28%. It really depends on how you ask the question. That matters a lot. The response options you give, for instance, the GSS only has one option for none, and the CES has three options for none. But it also matters how the person is asked the question, meaning was it done face-to-face, was it an open over- the phone or was it done through let's say a computer browser what we know is that when people look at other people face to face they're more likely to lie about certain things drug use uh, sexual behavior uh, views of racism and sexism but also religion so what we think's has happened been happening for a long time is the gss was always asked face to face and people would just lie they'd say they're protestant or catholic when they really were non-religious <laughs> and now that we've moved to a-, a browser people are much more likely to be honest when they're just looking at a computer screen And so what I actually think is one of the reasons the nuns has risen so significantly over the last 10 or 15 years is people are just being more honest now with pollsters. We might have been 20% nun 20 years ago and just didn't know it because people lied to people on surveys, and now we're seeing the actual numbers.
0: It's kind of like the number of people who say they listen to public radio versus the ones that actually do.
1: (laughs) Or the number of podcast downloads we get versus the actual number of podcast listens that we get because we oh, know those are nowhere close to each other. That
0: average listen rate can be brutal when you look at the percentage of people who click out after like 20%, 50%. Yeah. But yeah. you know what? I, we also want to hear from you this hour too, our listeners. Are you a nun? Or maybe you've noticed declining attendance at your church or your temple or wherever you worship. You can give us a call at 614 292 8513, or you can email us at allsides at wosu.org. So I want to talk a little bit about who the nuns are, because they're not one monolithic block. It's like when we talk about unaffiliated voters, right? In politics, you have Republicans, Democrats, unaffiliated. And the unaffiliated, like, they're all over the place, and they're all over the political spectrum. But one of the things I thought was interesting is that atheists and agnostics, on average, have more education than their religiously affiliated counterparts.
1: Yeah, that's—so really, we've—you can't get to 30% of the population and be one thing. Um, It'd be silly to say, like, all Protestants are the same or all Catholics are the same. Obviously, they're different because you don't get to, you know, 50, 60 million people and not have some variation. Atheist agnostics have very high levels of uh, education and income. About 51% of atheists have a four-year college degree. It's about 48% of agnostics. Um, amongst The general in population
0: per- is like a third, right? Yeah, it's it's so thirty five percent. Yeah.
1: Yes, yeah. So thirty five percent is the baseline, um, and a lot of Christian groups actually fall right around that baseline, around thirty five percent, like Catholics and in, in white evangelicals. But nothing in particulars. Only twenty five percent of nothing in particulars have a four year college. Oh, that's degree. really weird. Yeah, so it's really odd that we've been throwing all these three types of nuns together into one group for a long time because they're just an education-wise. So one-third of nothing in particulars have a high school diploma or less and make $50,000 a year or less in household income. One-third it's the highest of any group amongst atheists. That percentage is only 12%. So um, from a socioeconomic perspective, these two groups are, com- cannot be any different, and it's it's bizarre that we've been mashing them together in social science for so long. And I'm, I have a, a grant project I'm working on right now is a new typology of the nuns, and hopefully in the future we start separating these groups out into different types of nuns because we're doing them a disservice by putting atheists who tend to be highly educated, high-income, with nothing in particular. just tend to be very low-educated and low-income. Atheists are the most politically active group in America today. of them gave to a candidate or campaign in 2020. Amongst white evangelicals, it was 26%. Nothing in particular, it was less than 15%. So nothing particulars are checking out of every aspect of American society, so not just religion but also education, also uh, politics. Well, atheists have, are doing really well on all those metrics, they're engaged in politics, they're engaged in education, they're really doing well from a pure social science perspective. So I hope going forward more people talk about the growing number of nothing in particulars because they pose all kinds of problems for us from a trust perspective, from a political perspective, from a social capital perspective. And remember, they're growing rapidly over the last 10 or 15 years.
0: Yeah, that was one of the things that I found really fascinating when I dove into the data is that there's much lower rates of civic engagement generally, not just political engagement, but like civic engagement among the nothing in particulars, whereas atheists and agnostics are very civically engaged. And so you're right. It does feel like the nothing in particular sort of checking out everywhere.
1: And that's and the sad thing is there are atheists, tons of really well-funded atheist groups. The American Atheists are one. The uh, F- Foundation for, uh, for the Separation of Church and State is another one. Uh, there is no group for the nothing in particulars. <laughs> There's no one advocating for them. There's no one organizing <laughs> for them. And they are, they might be one of the most important groups in America today, and they're overlooked, uh, unseen, forgotten. They're not part of the conversation. And I think a lot of the things that we've been struggling with, and I think COVID exacerbated a lot of these things, it, it hit the nothing in particulars worse than it hit these other groups because they were already isolated. They were already lonely. They're already struggling from a mental health perspective, and this has just made everything a lot worse, and atheists are doing fine. (laughs) Nothing particulars are not doing fine.
0: We have a call from Don in Cincinnati who actually, I think, wants to touch on this particular issue. Go ahead, Don.
2: Yep. I was just going to say that
3: uh, uh, it seems to me the more that the uh, churches and, and other kinds of places like that... Are being used as, as just social meeting places and not so much places of, of religious worship.
0: Yeah, the nuns aren't getting that third place, which we'll definitely talk about in our third segment, but they're not getting that social interaction from church.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, we, that's the third place is a great, a great topic to talk about because we've always had third places in American society. For in all of human civilization, there's always been, you know, home, there's been work, and then there's been a, third place, whether it be the Elks or the Moose or the Rotary or church. And if you look at the data, and Robert Putnam talked about this 30 years ago in bowling alone, we're not bowling in bowling leagues anymore. We're bowling by ourselves, but we're also the Boy Scouts and the Cub Scouts and the Girl Scouts and the Rotary are all going away, and nothing has replaced that third space. And religion was doing well when Putnam wrote his book 30 years ago. It is not doing well today. So now what do we do? What replaces that third space? And by the way, social media is not that third space. It will never (laughs) replace that third space.
0: Yeah, I did want to ask because we kind of understand that the the nuns come from different races, ages, genders. But where do they come down politically?
1: Well— it's it, it's hard to put a, a big, broad statement on them. I will say atheist agnostics are Democrats, by and large. About eighty percent, 85% of atheists voted for Biden in 2020, and about 79% of agnostics voted for Biden in 2020, uh, which is the highest percentage for both groups ever. They've been trending left, but they've gone even further left recently. Nothing in particular is our interesting group because they are left of center politically but not like atheist agnostics. For instance, in 2016, only 55% of them voted for Hillary Clinton in the presidential election, but then in 2020, it jumped to nearly 70%. So they're much more volatile. They're much more malleable. I think they're much more persuadable part of the American electorate. The problem with nothing in particular, though, is only 32 percent of them voted in the 2022 midterm elections compared to 51 percent of atheists. So there's more of them, but they vote less, and that creates a serious problem.
0: We also have a call from Brian in Bedford. Go ahead. Are you there, Brian? Oh, yeah, yeah, I can hear you.
2: Well, I, I didn't know if you forwarded the message or not. Uh,
0: yeah. So you want to talk about uh, losing religion?
2: Yeah. A lot of people probably weren't alive back in 1976, like in junior high. I was in the library that day. They were removing the history books. They brought in the old one, took away the old ones and brought in the new ones. So I swiped an old one and read through it, and it said that near the end of the Roman Empire— Titus leveled Jerusalem, and a group of Jews escaped from there, and they decided to create a new religion. It was Christianity, and that was basically what it was all about. God God, and devil come from good versus evil. So, I mean, it's up to you if you want to tell them about it or not. <laughs>
1: yeah, so th- this is actually a really interesting point. So um, social anthropologists, when they think about religion, they um, they think in the, in the beginning when people groups were small, you didn't need religion because you didn't want to steal from your cousin or your brother because those are your familiar relationships. But once agriculture kicked in, civilizations got larger, two, three, 400 people in a town, and you don't know everyone personally. So why would you not steal or rape or murder? Well, if you create God, then there's a punishment for doing those things, a cosmic, eternal punishment. So there's a theory that God was basically created to keep people in line, and now that societies have become so well-developed and we have the police and the justice system, those are the the sort of things that keep us in line now, and we don't need God anymore. So one explanation for the reason that the nuns have risen so fast is sort of government's taken over the the punisher role in american society and we don't need this cosmic punishment because we have you know things like capital punishment
0: And we're going to talk about all the reasons why the nuns are rising in segment B, but I do want to get to actually another, the phone lines are really lighting up. I feel like this has really touched a nerve with people, which is good. It's a good Mm -hmm. conversation. But actually, we have Marianne from Columbus who wants to talk about the challenge of running for office as an atheist, because while atheists are really politically active, I do think it is really hard to save that and get elected. Go ahead, Marianne.
3: Uh, yes, thank you. Um, for example, when I fill out a form, I have to I have to say none, or I have to check none, rather than check atheist. And our speaker was talking about the fact that we really don't know how many atheists there are in the country. And in this country, there is a presumption that atheists may not have the same moral backbone of any religion, or that. If they I, don't identify with the rich religion, you can't tell if they are, you know, loaves and fishes people or murder thy enemies people. So it makes it difficult for atheists to run.
0: Yeah, right. yeah I, I think it, that's probably true. I don't know of a lot of atheists elected to office or openly actually, no, it open happen. atheists. And
3: somebody trying to run for office for, say, president, would it would be a very rocky road.
1: So uh, data-wise, Pew in 2014 asked people, would you be upset if an immediate member of your family married a person who didn't believe in God? 49% of people said they would be upset if a, an immediate member of their family married an atheist. And this is 2014. Probably it's gone down a little bit since then. Uh, only 10% of people would be mad if someone married an evangelical in their family. Uh, <laughs> there's tons of data out there that, that atheists face a tremendous amount of discrimination in in every factor of American society, there's no openly atheist uh, member of Congress right now. There's some that are on the humanist side, sort of kind of float in that I'm not going to say what I am side because I know the political cost of doing so. I really don't think there's any advantage to saying you're atheist. Uh, as a politician right now, because you would lose a significant number of, of voters and you and you're going to be a Democrat almost by default because atheists tend to be Democrats and you wouldn't win any more Democratic votes by being an atheist. So from a pure number standpoint, pure strategic standpoint, there's really no point for someone to come out as an atheist at this point in time in America.
0: That was Ryan Burge, a social scientist who studies religion. Coming up, we're going to try to answer why. Why is religious disaffiliation on the rise in America? That's when All Sites continues on 89.7 NPR News.
1: Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Stever. We're looking at how and why more Americans classify as nuns, meaning people with no religious affiliation. And we still want to hear from you. This hour, we're diving into the why people are religiously disaffiliating. And if you have a story about why maybe you became a nun, you can give us a call at 614-292-8513. Still with us is Ryan Birch, a political science professor at Eastern Illinois University who wrote a book called The Nuns, where they came from, who they are, and where they're going. And in your book, you often say that when you do media interviews, you don't have enough time to really answer why. Why there is a rise in religious disaffiliation. So I'd like to spend the next segment trying to dive a little deeper into that question and hopefully give you the space to explain why in a way that doesn't, quote, make your academic colleagues cringe. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I could teach an entire 15 week class on this by the way. I mean it's just so rich. Um one reason is secularization, which is this if you take real, uh, a sociology religion class, you're going to spend a whole week on secularization theory, which is just the idea that as as societies become more educationally advanced and economically prosperous, they will become less religious. It's basically we are we need meaning. We need to understand why things are happening and in 200, you know, 500 years ago when it didn't rain and our crops died and and we all starved to death. We wanted to know why. Well, it's because God's punishing us. Well, today we know it's meteorology and climatology. That's why it doesn't rain. So when we got science, we didn't need God anymore because science explains why it doesn't rain. It's not God punishing us for our sins. And so the theory here, if you look at Western Europe, uh, you know, secularization, there's like, look, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Countries like France, less than 10% of French uh, go to uh, church every week. In Germany and Spain, it's less than 10%. In the Nordic countries, it's less than 5%. So Denmark, Sweden, places like that. In America, it's still 25%, by the way. So really the question in America is why are we so religious? We should be a lot less religious uh, based on our neighbors uh, in Western Europe. So that's one. Uh, And we also can't discount the role of politics. Um, Politics is the master identity in American life right now. It used to be we thought that people picked their – candidates and parties based on their religion. And now more and more we realize they're actually picking their church based on their politics. Um, So now, you know, politics, if I'm a liberal, I'm either not going to go to church at all or pick a more liberal mainline style church where it's LGBTQ affirming and female pastors and all that. If I'm conservative, I'm probably going to go to a Southern Baptist or other evangelical church. So today, 50% of liberals are nuns. It's only 12% of conservatives. So we're seeing what we call the pew gap or the God gap get even larger. 45% of Biden voters in 2020 were atheist agnostic or nothing in particular. It was only 12% of Trump voters. So we're seeing that we're almost seeing political sorting and religious sorting uh, on the same lines. And then the last one I'll just mention quick is the internet. Um, I I can't measure this because we all got the internet so quickly in America. It's like in a five-year period of time, we all went from not having it to having it. But we know the internet makes it easier for you to find people like you. So – If I was an atheist born in Mississippi in 1950, I would probably live and die and not tell a single soul what I really believed about God because it would get me ostracized from my family, from my community, from my job, uh, from a potential spouse. But imagine you're an atheist born in Mississippi in 1990. So now you can go on the internet and find a a Facebook group or a subreddit or some other forum, Atheists in Mississippi, and, and realize that you're not alone. So it gave permission to be to for people to be what they really are and say what they really believe on surveys. You can also add things like the breakdown of the American family, a collapse in institutional trust. There's a whole panoply of things that have happened over the last 40 years that have given religion uh, a much harder time uh, in America.
0: Yeah. One thing I want to explore a little bit more is that we're much more religious than Europe. Um, And the question is, are we on the road to becoming more like France or the Nordic countries? But one of the things that came up in your book that I thought was fascinating is a lot of the countries that we're talking about there have far bigger social safety nets. So there's some theory that income inequality, that America has less of a social safety net, and therefore we have more religion.
1: Yeah, so there's a, a book by Norris and Inglehart. That's actually the argument they make in that book is that – You know, religion becomes like a balm, like a salve for people who are dealing with economic insecurity. It's a way just to make it through a day or make it through a week when you don't know if you're going to be able to afford the next meal or the rent payment. Um, And if you look at it, if you graph GDP on one axis and religious importance on the other axis, the countries that are the lowest on on the GDP scale, so places in the global south, uh, South America, Africa, those countries are both very poor and very religious at the same time. But as GDP goes up, religiosity goes down. What's really interesting, our our closest neighbor from a GDP standpoint is the Swiss. Um, What's funny about the Swiss is only about 12 percent of Swiss say religion is very important in America it's 51% say religion is very important the question is why you know why are we so much more religious than than a lot of our close cousins in the OECD and the answer is, one reason is because we've always had a ton of religious diversity in America. You know, no religion, we don't have a state church in America, which is what Jefferson and Madison wanted, which means that religion has to compete for followers. They're not just given tax funding every year. So that means they have to get better. It's almost entrepreneurial, like a marketplace. And if you look at most parts of America, no one religion dominates. You might have some evangelicals and some Catholics and some nuns, but there's not really many places in America where it's all Lutherans or all Presbyterians or all Catholics. And that's largely because of the marketplace that those two guys invented with uh, the writing of the Constitution.
0: We have a call from Jatendra in Lewis Center. I hope I've said that correctly.
1: Hi there. Yeah, you did. Oh, great. Can you hear me?
0: Yes, we can hear you great.
2: Yeah, thank you for taking my call. It's a very interesting topic uh, for me. Uh, So I think religion and God are two separate concepts, right, Uh, the way I understand it, right, and we often uh, use them interchangeably, right? So you could be affiliated with no religion, right? Because you don't agree or align with, with the thought process. Uh, doesn't mean you necessarily by default don't believe in God, but I feel like we use the same label right? that least uh, if you're not affiliating with a religion. And I feel like religion is nothing but... Religion is a human-created construct, right? Versus God is more abstract concept, right? Uh, so uh, just because you don't affiliate yourself with a religion doesn't mean you are a non-believer in God or a God-hater or things like that, right? So I just wanted to share that comment and maybe get uh, experts' thoughts on that. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I think that's something we touched on in the first segment, right, that a lot of the nuns say they do believe in some higher power.
1: Mm -hmm. So we talk about – the way I I always think about it is horizontal versus vertical religiosity. So vertical is what the caller was talking about. So your belief in God and spirits and the afterlife, heaven and hell, evil and good, those type of things, theological things. But there's also the horizontal dimension to religion, which is you and other people, not just people in your religious community, by the way, people in your larger community in the larger world. One point I try to make when I talk to pastors a lot is I don't think that many people are convinced by the theological arguments anymore. They're just – you know, they hear about their eternal soul and heaven and hell, and they go, okay, that's cute. I don't believe that. What I'm hearing more and more is that, especially amongst young people who are struggling with things like loneliness and depression and anxiety, they're missing connection with other people. And so I think the horizontal aspect of religion cannot be discounted. Going to a place with other people uh, on a regular basis and seeing their struggles and they see you struggle, I mean, is one of the most valuable things that we can have as human beings. I've been a part of a church my entire life. Uh, when my, uh, both my sons were born, when we got home from the hospital, there were casserole dishes and pies <laughs> on our front step brought by people from the church. And I wonder if you don't have that, if we don't have any community, which is what we're, we're kind of careening towards right now, who is going to bring the meatloaf when you come home from the hospital? Who's going to watch your kid when you have no one else to watch your kid? We need the horizontal aspect. I, the, the vertical thing, that's the pastor's job. The horizontal aspect is a social scientist I can speak on, and we desperately need that in American society. And if religion goes away, what is going to replace that? I don't think there's anything on the horizon that could come close to what religion's done in American life for the last 200 years.
0: Another thing we touched on in the first segment that I want to circle back as we're diving into the why the nuns are rising is the what you call social desirability bias or people lie. You have this great example in the book actually from Ohio. So you took a look at – or. You mentioned research that took a look at Ashtabula County. That's in northeastern Ohio. So researchers asked adults in the county about their church attendance. And 36% said they attended weekly. But then they went out to try and verify this. They called churches. They checked cars and parking lots. They were trying to figure out how many people in Ashtabula actually go to church every week. And they came up with 19.6. So about half the people who said they were going once a week were lying about it.
1: Yeah, makes you feel good, right? My entire job is a lie. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm talking about. And actually, there's – so the extension of that is there – I just saw a working paper from an economist at the University of Chicago. He got cell phone tracking data, which is super creepy, by the way, but it's legal to buy disaggregated cell phone tracking data. And what he found is only about 4% of people go to church on a weekly basis or a house of worship on a weekly basis uh, based on cell phone tracking data. Oh, dear. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's that low. I think there's something up with the methods of that paper, but it's definitely, you know, I, I tell people 25% on surveys, but I think we all know it's not 25% because I think what people do when they answer that question is they don't actually do tally marks in their head. They just think I'm the kind of person who would attend church every week, and therefore I'll say I'm a weekly attender, even though I probably go 35 times a year. So the question is what matters more? The kind of person you think you are, or actually how many times you come to the building. I think there's a really interesting debate about those two concepts.
0: Yeah. It's kind of like where you say you exercise three to five times a week, but maybe that's not the act like that's your that's the aspiration, is that you're yes, getting to the gym. I'm an now.
1: aspirational like church attendant. You know, like I also give an example in the book, like during COVID, people I, I wrote a whole chapter about COVID in the new edition, because people want to know what happened to religion. During COVID, if you look at the attendance numbers, they didn't drop that much. And people go, why? Because churches were closed. I go, because a lot of people answered aspirationally. If the church was open, how often would I go? And weekly attenders were still in their minds, weekly attenders, even though they couldn't go because of COVID. So COVID didn't really accelerate or decelerate changes in religion. In fact, it was just more and more the status quo.
0: And we have a call from Christy in Reynoldsburg. Go ahead.
3: Hi, Anna. First, I want to say hello, and this is my first time talking to you. I'm a long-time listener. Um, Second, I wanted to bring up that um, I kind of feel like people—I'm actually atheist, but I feel like people are leaning more towards what seems familiar to me as uh, Pascal's Wager, um, where they're not really affiliated with any religion or anything, but they're affiliated where— Uh, They just believe in, I'm going to believe in a God, to say I believe in a God, just on the what if, there is a God, I'm not going to fail. So that was basically my point.
1: You want me to unpack Pascal's wager for the the (laughs) listeners now?
0: (laughs) I love a good wonky explanation. Go right ahead.
1: Okay, so Pascal's wager is the idea that if you don't believe in God and God exists, you die and go to hell, and that's really bad. Um, Of all the outcomes, that's the outcome you want to avoid. But if you believe in God and God doesn't exist, you go into the dirt, and that's not terrible because you don't know you're in the dirt. But if God exists and you believe in him and you die, you go to heaven, and that's really great. So the options are you know, don't believe in God and go to hell or believe in God and be worm dirt or go to heaven. And so in that scenario, being worm dirt and going to heaven is way better than going to hell. So you should believe in God because there's really no downside risk to believing in God.
0: Yeah, and then that gets into the whole, like, acts versus faith, right? Like, can you believe in God and do nothing to act on it and still get to go to heaven? But that's a whole other religious conversation that we probably shouldn't get into. Yeah. Uh But, you know, one of the other explanations that I found really fascinating that maybe gets to those none in particular versus atheists and agnostics was this trust in government idea. So in 1964, 70 percent of Americans trusted the government to do the right thing, at least most of the time. That is not the case today. If you look even at like congressional approval ratings or presidential approval ratings. And so trust in institutions generally has just dropped.
1: Mm -hmm. And that's, to me, that might be the most caustic thing going on in American society right now. Institutional trust has collapsed in basically every aspect of Americans. So, so not just government, banks, uh, unions, uh, the media, but also religion. You know, it's been caught up in this larger sort of downward spiral of we don't trust anybody. But also interpersonal trust has gone down over time, which is can I trust another person to not like assault me on the street or not steal from me? Can I, for me? My, my, my whole thing is can I leave my office door open when I go to give a lecture and trust that no one will steal my stuff? That is interpersonal trust. That has collapsed over the last 50 years, and I think religion has been caught up in that larger sort of narrative about we can't trust institutions because they're all failing. And in the religious space, obviously some of these wounds are self-inflicted with the Catholic Church scandal, uh, also the Southern Baptist scandal, which has been happening. And we hear stories about preachers trying to buy new jets and living in mansions. And things like that. But I think it really is caustic for for democracy as a whole because we have to believe that other people are generally trustworthy to get through a a democratic process. We cynicism is ruling the day right now. There's there's a difference between being skeptical, which is saying, "I'm not sure, let me check into that," versus cynical, which is everyone's awful and they're all out for their own good. And I think cynicism has become the currency of this younger generation especially. And I think it's really, really troublesome because what that means is I don't even – you can't run for office unless you want to get rich. You can't be a pastor unless you want to get rich. Everyone's trying to take advantage of me, and that's a terrible way to go through life. People are generally good. They want to help out. They want to help their community. Trust them to do those things because we can't move forward as communities unless we believe that to be true.
0: I am 100% team glass half full. So I am with you on that. I know sometimes people, like, characterize it as Pollyanna-ish, but, like, yeah, I'd like to – believe that I live in a world where people are mostly good
1: and the alter by the way the alternative is is really scary right which is like the purge you gotta have you know you you gotta be on looking over your shoulder every moment of every day and if you do that you can't think about the higher things in life you can't build you know build a business or build a community because you're always worried about someone taking it from you we have to be optimistic we have to at least believe that people aren't going to try to take everything from us every moment
0: what I did find fascinating about the trust section of your book is that obviously trust in the Catholic Church has dropped since 2002 when we first started really hearing about these sex abuse scandals and they were terrible and like public like opinion on how the church handled it like was not favorable but interestingly the decline in the number of Catholics didn't plummet like they didn't see the biggest drop in people calling themselves Catholic
1: yeah, that's probably one of those fascinating things that I, I'm still trying to parse out a little bit. But I will tell you, so the number of Catholics in America today was around 25% for f- between 1972 and about 2010 or 15. The last couple of years, it's dropped a little bit. So now it's around 21% based on uh, what survey you look at. So it's down three or four percent from from what it's been historically. But here's really what's going on underneath. In the 1970s, half of Catholics went to mass every Sunday, and today it's less than 25% of Catholics oh. go to mass every Sunday. So it's it's like Catholicism is almost like a it's, – it's more than a religious identity. It's almost like a cultural identity, like I'm Italian-American or Irish-American or I'm Hispanic-American, and it's part of my familial tradition. So I'll say I'm Catholic. On surveys, but I don't go to church, and I have really nothing to do with the church anymore. I think with Protestants, they don't do that as much when they when they're when they don't stop going to church, you're not like a, a Baptist by heritage. you know you sort of walk away from all those things, so I think it's really under the top number looks fine, but underneath it, man, there's a lot of really scary things going on for the Catholic Church in the United States
0: yeah, you see that so I was raised jewish uh I'm sort of like. I don't know. I'm Jewish in a cultural sense, I guess, at this stage of my life, which is the best way to put it. And that's probably one of those things, right, where there's a culture and ethnicity. There's kind of that like wraparound to it. So whereas I don't consider myself to be religious, I don't attend synagogue every week, but that's still what I might call myself on a survey
1: yeah, Judaism is tough because it's got the ethnicity piece. it's got the it, it's got the religious piece. And it's really, really hard to like ask a Jewish person on a survey. Are you a secular Jew? Or are you like actually religious? Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, it's it's just that's that's one of those most difficult things that we have to do. And also what makes it even harder is surveys are written to try to be as all-encompassing as possible. For instance, I was writing a, a looking at survey data about Buddhists. Buddhists score very low on religious attendance because going to church going to a temple is not part of a typical Buddhist religious activity. So we write it for the Christian audience, knowing that other religious groups don't behave the same way. So surveys have to be sort of like one size fits all when we know in religion that one size definitely doesn't fit all.
0: And if you want to join this conversation, either about why you've left religion or maybe what you're seeing in your own place of worship, you can give us a call at 614-292-8513. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to dive into how the pandemic changed church attendance and what pastors and ministers can do going forward. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News.
1: Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage, introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. We're looking at how and why more Americans classify as nuns, people who say they have no religious affiliation. Still with us is Ryan Burge, a Baptist pastor and political science professor at Eastern Illinois University. He's also the author of a great book, which I definitely recommend you go read. It's called The Nuns, where they came from, who they are, and where they're going and in the updated version of the book so if you get the the re-release version there's a whole section on the covid-19 pandemic and how it's impacted religious disaffiliation or at the very least weekly in-person attendance
1: yeah not as much as people would guess and that's that's what's really the overarching conclusion from that chapter is that that the pandemic didn't The trend line downward in tennis just continued through the pandemic. And so I looked at a survey that actually happened every week during the most of the pandemic – and interesting enough, belief in God was exactly the same at the beginning as it was at the end. Uh, religious affiliation was exactly the same as it was in the end. So I don't think that COVID really changed a whole lot. For, I know a lot of people are like, oh, this is going to be like a, a, a really important moment where people are going to come back to faith because they missed, you know, they it makes them think about life existentially. That didn't happen. But I will say here's what I think the long tail impact of COVID is going to be because I'm already seeing it in conversations I'm having, but also data that I'm looking at is pastors. Man. Pastors really, really struggled during COVID and in the aftermath of COVID because most pastors. This is what people don't understand. Most pastors don't want to be political. They don't talk about abortion or gay marriage or any of these issues from the pulpit because it's just too divisive. It, it makes people mad, so they kind of take the middle way. But with COVID, you had to be political because you had to make things like, do we have a mask policy? Are we going to distance? You had to make those decisions. If you made no decision, then you were a Republican. If you said we're going to mask and be you know, spread out, then you're a Democrat. And pastors, no matter what they did in that scenario, were going to make a part of their congregation mad. And those long-term resentments are what get pastors out of jobs. And being a pastor, I've said this many times. I think it's one of the worst jobs in America. The pay is not very good. The hours can be crazy. Um, you don't really have any any tangible, you know, outcomes of, you know, like people, you know, you don't you don't get widgets being a pastor. And I think we're seeing in the data that almost half of pastors have seriously considered lo- leaving the ministry in the prior 12 months. So I think that might be the big problem going forward is churches cannot find leaders to lead them because young people just don't want to get in this career.
0: We have a call from Madeline in Columbus. Uh go ahead, Madeline. I was going I was
3: hoping that the author might comment if he has looked into this whole twelve step business and I'm a part of Al Anon Alateen family groups and one of the tenants is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves. And I didn't know if he had looked at that in his book at all. And I will um love to take this offline. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so um, what's really fascinating about religion is we think about it in three ways, behavior, belief, and belonging. Okay. So behavior is like do you go to church, and and about 40% of Americans say they never go to church now. Um, Belonging is are you a nun, atheist, agnostic, nothing in particular. About 30% of Americans say they're nuns on surveys. But the last one is belief. And even today, even though we've seen all these people leave church and not go to church and and become nuns, only 10% of people say they have an atheist or agnostic belief about God. So 90% of people today still say they believe in God at some level. Here's what's fascinating. Even among people who never attend religious services, they're just as likely to say, I believe in God without any doubts as they are to say, I don't believe in God at all. So the belief piece is still pervasive in American life, and obviously it's a huge part of groups like AA and Al-Anon believing in a higher power because most Americans still very much do believe in a higher power. But here's the other thing that I think about AA a lot. AA meets in churches across America. What happens when there aren't as many churches to meet in across America? Where's AA going to go? Um, these are the kind of practical questions I think we need to be thinking about a lot more when it comes to religion. For if you're non-religious and a church closes, it might not affect you, but it might affect someone in your community. Someone's going to, you know, this is going to change American society when we see thousands of churches close down in the next ten or twenty years, and we're not fully prepared for all the implications of those closures.
0: Yeah, I read an article in the Dayton Daily News in preparing for this episode that had a quote from the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, which covers 19 counties in southwest Ohio. And they said that COVID exacerbated a long-term trend in declining religious practice, and they had seen a decline in regular Sunday mass attendance in their counties of 19 percent in 2021 from what it was pre-pandemic. And, you know, last summer, the Diocese of Columbus announced plans to close 19 churches. Like, Catholic churches across the state of Ohio, We've there's been various news articles, are closing in pretty decent numbers.
1: And that's—there's actually a whole new uh, type of real estate agent that just deals with, with church property that's been abandoned. How do you sell it? Who do you sell it to? What it's worth? To give you some, some personal anecdote, our church— we, we are down to about 10 people now. We have a 16,000-square-foot building, seats about 300 people, sits on eight acres of ground. We've been around for over 150 years now. We could not afford our building anymore, so we went to go sell it. We couldn't find an appraiser to give us a, a value. For our building because there's just no comps in our area because churches, you know, to this point, haven't sold a whole bunch. And uh, our, our our appraisal came at, in at $300,000. By the way, it would cost $2 million to rebuild our building right now from an insurance perspective. The best offer we got for our building was $100,000 uh, for 16,000 square feet. So if we just walked away from it, it would become someone else's problem. It'd become the denomination's problem or the city's problem. So what do you do in situations where people just abandon church buildings? These again, these are not easy questions to answer because we're gonna have to figure because people don't want to just buy a church and turn it into something else. There's just all that 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 weight of sacredness that goes along with it. And people don't want to tear it down either, because it just seems sacrilegious to do that. So what do we do? With these empty buildings, I don't think we have a good answer right now.
0: And if you're looking at older churches, a lot of times there may be a cemetery next to it, which also complicates mm-hmm. things because, like, you're not going to dig up and move all those people. It also exactly. feels wrong just fundamentally yeah. morally to do that.
1: It does. And who's going to take care of the cemetery? Because oftentimes it was the church people who, who did the groundskeeping at the cemetery to keep it going for so long. So what I always tell people is when churches – in America, we don't have a huge social safety net like the Nordic countries do. So, churches have really stepped in and filled in those gaps of the social safety net so the holes aren't that big. So, what happens when churches start to close? Is government going to get bigger? and close those gaps. I don't think that's going to happen. Americans don't want a bigger government. So churches go away and the government doesn't get bigger. There's going to be lots and lots of people who fall through the holes of the social safety net. And there are people who are who are lonely, who are addicted, who are depressed, who need food, who need shelter, when, when religion has provided that for two or 300 years in America. And government's not going to be in any position to do so. So what are we going to do to face a lot of these societal problems?
0: Yeah, I wanted to Say so One of the things I find interesting about Europe, so Europe has much lower attendance in church, as we were talking about in one of the previous segments, but they are very good at the third place. They're very yeah. good. Like, I was in France in October with my family and you know, you can't just get like takeaway coffee anywhere. To them, it's very confusing this idea of getting coffee and taking it away. No, you go, you sit, you hang out, you spend the time, and like takeaway food is a very strange concept. Like they're very good at ensuring that you actually like spend time and maybe communally spend time around meals, especially.
1: I think that's some, man, that's some, if I could tell the audience anything is I need you to be intentional about your social life. And what I mean by that, it's so easy. It used to be, you went, if you were at home in the 1950s, you had the radio. That was your only source of entertainment or books. And a lot of people weren't really compelled by either of those things. They would go do community events to, you know, to pass the time and enjoy each other. And then we got TV. And then we got the internet. And then we got social media. And then we got cell phones. And now it's easier to stay home. You can be entertained at home much easier than ever before in human history. So it's actually harder to go out fight that urge, resist that urge to cancel plans and not go do stuff. I do stuff in the community all the time. I don't want to do, but I don't (laughs) want to go. I don't want to be there. But when I come home, you know what I think? I'm glad I did that. I'm glad I was there for part of that because it means I was part of a community of people. I ran into people I haven't seen in a while. We can make connections. We can talk about different things. I can learn from them. They can learn from me. And it lifts my spirits from a mental health perspective. So fight the urge to stay home and find reasons to socialize. And that's so incredibly important in 2024.
0: We have a call from Cynthia in Columbus. Go ahead. Hello. Um, thank you.
3: Um, I am a nun in the sense that I am an everything. I believe in God, and I believe God's been trying to talk to people for a very long time. So all religions have some wisdom, and I don't have any preference. Um, but anyway, but I do attend various services. Anyway, speaking as a relatively high IQ person and having gone through a social science study done when I was in school um, as a teenager, we found very clearly that people who get A's don't think they need anybody. They figure everything out themselves, uh, and this is relevant to the people who are atheists and have higher IQs or higher uh, educational achievement. People who are always getting A's on the test, they don't have a study group because they don't need one. They go down in the basement all by themselves, and they figure, or in the, the cubicle of the library, they figure out all the answers, and is there a God was never a question on a test, you know, a multiple-choice test. So um, they it affects their lives later, and one of them is they don't think they need anybody, and that's really all I had to say. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's a great point. So one thing that I know that religion does for me is make me realize the world is bigger than my own world. There are people who don't look like me, don't think like me, don't behave like me, don't vote like me. You know, churches used to be this, this tremendous melting pot, not racially. They've always been racially segregated, but economically they've always been very, very diverse. So you've got people who are CEOs and people who are, you know, janitors sitting side by side in the pews, people who voted for the Democrats and people who voted for the Republicans sitting side by side. And what that does is makes you realize that the, the, the world is bigger than what you think it is, and people are struggling with things that you don't know they're struggling with. And I think that's one thing that religion has taught me is that I don't have it all figured out, and at some point in my life I'm going to need your help, and at some point in your life you're going to need my help. And it's okay to do life together. It's okay to work in community to get through these these dark moments. And it's okay to share that darkness and that light with other people around you. So again, I wonder if you're not going to church, that's fine. Like theologically, well, you can believe whatever you want to believe about God, your religion's right or wrong, but who is gonna be there in your darkest hour? Who is gonna, you know, drive you home from the hospital when you need someone to drive you home? The answer increasingly is no one. And religion used to provide that, and I don't know what's going to replace that, but we need to be intentional about creating these networks to help replace those things that that we're going to lose when religion goes away. I want
0: to end the conversation by talking about projections for the future. So in that Pew study, they actually did some modeling on where they think we might be going. And so what I found really fascinating is by twenty fifty, they think that forty-seven percent of the population will be Christian. It could be potentially as low as thirty-nine percent. Um, but they they think the most likely one was about forty seven percent, which will mean less than half the country identifies as Christian by twenty fifty, which is just I mean It's fascinating that, like, from 1950 to 20, like, over that 100 period, that period of 100 years, you would see it drop below 50%. Yeah. In in
1: 1972, 90% of all people who took the GSS were Christians. 73% were white Christians and 16% were non-white Christians. Here's what's fascinating, though. So now in the GSS, 64% of people are Christians. But that's only because white Christianity's dropped from 73% to 47%. The share of Americans who are non-white Christians is exactly the same today as it was 50 years ago. Oh, wow. The, yeah, so it's the white Christianity piece that's really fading in American life. Non-white Christians are exactly the same share, but I think it brings up a really interesting point about what the future looks like. We've always been. Just from a numerical perspective, a Christian country there has been more Christians than any other group. So how do we respond to a world where we're much more pluralistic, where, where Christians do not always dominate the school board and in the, in the city council meeting and all those things? How do we navigate issues about things like religious freedom when Christianity is in the minority? Christians are not used to that. And I think what you're seeing right now with a lot of the backlash with Christian nationalism and all these other things that are happening on the right is they know that their time in the sun is sort of fading they want to go back to the leave it to beaver times when it was white christianity dominating america but the future does not look like that and they're mad about that i mean no one wants to lose power i think that's just the human nature but how do you you know how do you decline gracefully and how do you give over power to other people in in a, in a meaningful way that is the question that's really going to plague us over the next 30 or 40 years as society becomes less white and less Christian. How do we become more pluralistic, more demo- little d de- democratic and more willing to compromise when it seems like every one of those things has become less pervasive now? We're going to need it more and more in the future.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes, and I don't want to Trample too far into politics, but I think sometimes that's at the heart of the, like, make America great, make America great again slogan. There's this idea that somehow, like, we were better before and we can get back to that way. But I think some of that is tied up in faith and religion.
1: Oh, I think I think the MAGA thing is 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 so multi. It's actually in many ways, it's it's like a it's a jewel. You can see in it whatever you want. Every time you turn it, you find something different. And obviously, you can say, well, America used to be white. I want America to be white again. America used to be Christian. I want it to be Christian again. But the part we don't think about is for a lot of people. You know, 50 years ago, you could get a job, the the husband could get a job, the wife could stay home, they could have a decent income, buy a new car every couple of years, go on vacation every year and live comfortably. And those type of jobs have gone away as well. Now, those factory jobs don't pay as well for lots of people with a high school diploma or less. So it might be race, it might be religion, but it also might be economics. And I think a lot of the people who vote for Donald Trump see in that statement what they want it to be. It's not the same thing for everyone, and it's not a one-size-fits-all slogan.
0: That was Ryan Birch, a Baptist pastor and political science professor. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thanks so much, Anne. Appreciate it.